The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're continuing our study of the life of Christ. We're actually now in a new part of the 13-part series. We're in part 11, which is called Prophecies in Preparation for the Death of Christ, and it's largely the Olivet Discourse. So from our chart... We're again in this last section of the chart, but also getting very near the last section of uh, the way that Dr. Thomas divides it up in the Harmony of the Gospels. So, this is the Olivet Discourse. It's the sixth of the six major discourses in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew really organizes his Gospel around these large blocks of teaching material that Christ delivers. And here they are, the Sermon on the Mount. These are all the ones that we've covered. Commissioning of the Twelve, where he sends out the Twelve to do the same kind of works that he had done and they had seen him do and also proclaim the nearness of the kingdom. The mysteries of the kingdom, which were the parables in Matthew 13 that Christ turned to, particularly after the, the leaders of Israel said that he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. Life in the kingdom, our kingdom citizenship in Matthew 18, the seven woes to Israel's leaders or teachers, scribes and Pharisees. There's eight, as we noted, I guess that was last week or two weeks ago, uh, if you count the ones that show up in Mark and Luke. And then this one, Olivet Discourse, uh, Matthew 24 and 25. It's a really important discourse. As you can imagine, by this point, Christ is still Tuesday of Passion Week. Uh, he's already had this strong confrontation with Israel's leaders on Tuesday morning, and now he's leading his disciples out over to the Mount of Olives, and he's really got to start preparing them even more for the time that he's going to be away from them. He's already done that a little bit. He's going to do it a lot, uh, both in this Olivet Discourse and also uh, in, when we get to the upper room and his instruction from the upper room over to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to talk a lot about the time that he's away there as well. Each one of these, uh, if perhaps you've done this already, but I would encourage you to do it if not. In Matthew's Gospel, each one of these sections are marked off by what we call an introductory formula and a closing formula. And it just, I can, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, it talks about the fact that he, he sat down with his disciples and he opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, and then it's five through seven. And at the end, there's a closing formula of, you know, they, they heard these teaching, uh, it's a really bad paraphrase, but they heard the teaching of Christ and they were amazed at the authority with which he taught. Each one of these discourses are marked off that way. So here's the way that we're gonna outline these two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. We're only gonna get probably through verse 41 of chapter 24 this morning, but. We have the setting of the discourse, which is kind of like that introductory formula that I just mentioned. And then we have a description really of Daniel's 70th week. Now I'm gonna show another chart. I know those of you that were here, which most of you, when we did the study in Revelation, we talked a lot about what this chart looked like, but it was really based on uh, from Daniel chapter nine. And we can see a lot of correspondences between what Christ sketches out in the Olivet Discourse with what the book of Revelation shows uh, as far as the seven sealed scroll. The dividing mark between the beginning of birth pains, which is, are things that are gonna happen, but they're not marking the very end. It's difficulties that Christ wants to prepare the disciples and us, including us, for, but it, it leads to things that are worse. So just like with the seven sealed scroll, you have the first six seals are, are bad. There's no question about it but at least the things that are even worse. And it's a fitting metaphor, right? Like for those of you that have had children, uh, it starts out with birth pangs and it gets worse and worse, the pain does, until the child's delivered. So the abomination of desolation is the halfway point of Daniel's 70th week. Then we have a description of the coming of the Son of Man and signs of nearness, but unknown time. So. Just like for us, right? We, we've talked a lot lately, especially about the importance of living in light of Christ's return and recognizing that that's out there. We don't know exactly when. We know that there's nothing else that has to be fulfilled before he comes, but we don't know the date. And it's a good thing we don't know the date, right? Because we 
kind of plan accordingly, and that's not a, that's not the way that God intends for it to be. I mean, as Christ is talking to his disciples in this discourse, he said he even didn't know the day of his return. But it's, we're to live in expectancy that it could come at any time. So that's the point of those verses. And then next week, we'll look at these parables that Christ delivers on the same occasion that are really instruction of, okay, here's the way it's going to be. Here's what's going to happen. Now here's how you need to live in light of that. And it's very much the same idea of living in light of Christ's return. Special emphasis on watchfulness and faithfulness. So that's what those five parables are going to talk about. And then we have the judgment of the Son of Man's coming in chapter 25. Uh, I think a very clear passage and instruction that the fact that Christ's reign will be on the earth. It's after he returns in power and glory that he sits upon his throne. And I make that point because some people would argue that he's sitting on his throne now at the Father's right hand. He's sitting on a throne now to be sure. It's the Father's throne. His throne is in Jerusalem on the throne of David as his ancestor. So we'll see that very clearly in the last part of chapter 25. Okay? So let's review again, just kind of set the stage of what we've seen already in Passion Week. Christ comes in on Sunday on the tri in the triumphal entry. He's held as the king of Israel, comes into the temple, looks around a little bit, and leaves. Uh, he comes back in on Monday, and both on Monday and Tuesday, he's teaching and instructing not only his disciples, but also having this confrontation with the religious leaders, especially on Tuesday morning. Uh, that's what we have next. It's this head-on challenge to his authority, and then he turns the tables and begins to challenge them. Um, they're trying to trap him and really trying to find something that they can bring him up on charges to the Romans that would result in his crucifixion. They couldn't do that themselves at that time. But Christ turns the tables and starts rebuking Israel's leader. Very strong rebuke in Matthew 23. He rebukes them for things like hypocrisy, their de desire to be noticed for their quote-unquote spirituality, to be respected by men rather than to be pleasing to God, their misunderstanding of truth. And that was a huge thing that they were responsible for. I mean, I think that's what Christ is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, is correcting a lot of things that the Pharisees had added to the law and because they were teachers they had an even higher accountability and then the neglect to the weightier matters of the law so he that's what the seven woes that christ goes after these religious leaders are all about the climax of that rebuke is this in 23 verses 37 to 39 oh jerusalem jerusalem and that again is not just talking about the city but really the nation as a whole represented by the city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's really <clears throat> going to leave the temple itself for the last time. He's going to be back in the city after he's arrested. But he's really leaving the religious leaders and leaving the nation as it were in a representative way uh, and it's going to obviously he's going to make some appearances after his resurrection to different groups of people but to the nation as a whole he's really not going to make an appearance the way that he has on his first coming until he comes back and until they recognize him truly as the messiah so jesus then leaves the temple he crosses over the kidron valley to the east of where the temple and the city are and to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And that's in the first three verses of 24. That's going to provide the setting of this discourse. Before I read those verses, I just want to show you. Oh, that one's blank. This is what it would look like if you're to the south and you're looking towards the north. The temple is here. Uh, you've got the, the Hinnom Valley down here to the south of the city. And then the Kidron Valley running on the east side. So the Mount of Olives is over here. Now, if you're just looking at this model, you'd say, well, that's a pretty steep drop there. How's he get from the temple complex across this and up into the Mount of Olives? It's not that steep, actually. Um, this is what it would look like if you were there today. And you're on the Mount of Olives. 
you're looking over in this case not to the temple although that's where the temple would be you're looking at the dome of the rock at that point but you can see the valley there's definitely something that you can cross and it is an incline to get up onto the Mount of Olives but here's what you know this is the model that I've shown to you before this is what it would look like um, as far as as they cross the valley the disciples are looking back at the temple and it was a glorious thing I mean the thing sits up on a hill you can see all the city around it is lower so it's this magnificent thing that's higher and they're looking up at it and the disciples are saying look how beautiful this place is this is something that Herod had worked on to restore the glory of the temple for 46 years and that's what launches the discourse so let's read those verses now Matthew 24 beginning in verse 1 <clears throat> Jesus came out from the temple was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him and he answered and said to them do you not see all these things truly I say to you not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives the disciples came to him privately they're going to ask him a couple of questions when will these things be? What things? The things you were just talking about. Exactly. So particularly the destruction of the temple, because that's what they had just pointed out to him, and that's what he had just responded and say, hey, this place is about to be wasted. And that would subsequently occur in AD 70. The second question was, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, for us especially, this uh, is clear that he's talking about what's going to happen right before Christ comes back. I think in the disciples' mind, it was likely that they connected those two things together. The destruction of the temple would be the prelude to the return of Christ or to the coming of Christ and to the establishment of his kingdom. Now, Jesus, and this is not unusual, right? We've seen this in Old Testament prophecy, and, and Jesus is providing prophecy here. He really didn't describe that there was going to be this long period of separation between 70 AD and his return. I think part of the reason, or at least to me it makes sense that he would, part of the reason he would do this is he wants to encourage that expectation, that ex expectancy again, so they're not really trying to calculate, hey, the temple's going to be destroyed. We know that Christ is coming back soon in light of that. But they're constantly thinking as has the church ever since this discourse was given and recorded in Matthew, that Christ is coming back. Not really trying to provide a means of calculating, okay, if this sign happens, then we know it's exactly this long period of time until his return. It doesn't really work that way. Um, but it does give you an idea of, it does give us enough idea of things that will happen to, uh, to lead up to the return of Christ. <clears throat> that picture you keep showing us of the temple yes the temple of solomon was originally destroyed by the babylonians and then it was destroyed again by the romans is this the reproduction but that looks like a pretty pretty substantial building it is and so this will be the temple that was a model of the temple that was in christ's day and remember after solomon's temple was destroyed it was rebuilt by the exiles now it would be it would have been enhanced to this because Herod was a great builder and he really wanted to curry the favor of the Jews so he took the basic temple structure that was rebuilt by the exiles and remember even after the exiles rebuilt it they wept because they didn't feel like it was as glorious as Solomon's yeah, temple. That, I mean, that looks pretty remarkable it is. and that's not, if it's not how good, as good as Solomon's was what must that one have been like? exactly yeah wow. I think it was more glorious uh, but at the same time I think this one was probably better than what the exiles saw and because of all the work that Herod had done to improve it. It, it is a, I mean, you can imagine it just be a remarkable thing to see. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually have a painting at home that shows modern day Jerusalem like the other picture that we saw. It looks like this, but it has the temple instead of the Dome of the Rock mm -hmm. in place up there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we believe that there will be a future temple mm -hmm. described in Ezekiel 40 through 48, 40 through 43 in particular, that will be on that same spot. I mean, this is the same piece of real estate where Solomon's temple was. This was the place that has always been designated as the place for the temple. It won't be built anywhere else. 
So is the Wailing Wall just outside there? Or yes. It's got to be right next to it then. That's right. And that was part of the part of the wall of the of the, of the original. The original. That's right. Some of these other walls that you see in this picture were built by the Turks during the Ottoman Empire, and the walls have been redone a number of times through the years. But that section right there that you're talking about, the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, was part of the original wall. So it's got to be real real close to that then, because if that's on the original piece of real estate, yes, it's got to be right. And, and and the Arabs don't they don't mind that wall. So they, it's a or is it a sore is that a sore thumb for them or? Well, just as it's a sore thumb for that mosque to be on the Jewish place. I was going to say it's it's a powder keg if you go to Jerusalem today because you've got Arabs and Christians and Muslims and Christians and Jews all living in very tight quarters right there and all having particular space. You know, obviously the Jews want that place gone, oh, that yeah. mosque gone, and yet. They've worked out enough cooperation between them where even though the Muslims control the Temple Mount, they'll let people go up there and visit. Uh, they'll let them come into their place. They'll let them, you know, just visit where that big space where the temple used to be. So it's really an unusual arrangement. I mean, Israel itself is just the whole country is an unusual arrangement because of the way the political situation is and the way that the religious situation is. Yeah. You know, there was... I think it was during the Six Day War in '67, where the Jews actually took took over the Temple Mount, and they they went up and put an Israeli flag on the top of that mosque, and they they quickly took it off just because they didn't want to start a real holy war at that point. What um, is that wall that's there that that we're seeing that big so, wall? So that's just one of the walls of the city itself. There's okay. still very clearly defined walls around the old city. <clears throat> And those are the ones I was talking about earlier that were built by the Turks. I mean, it, they would have been originally built by Israel. By Israel, yeah. Yeah, but they, they've had to be rebuilt a number sure. of times during history. <clears throat> through history. All the wars and all that that's stuff right. that has gone on over the years. Exactly. <clears throat> wow. Thank you. Sure. So there's two questions. Well, we did that already, didn't we? Um, let's talk a little bit before we go further in, in Christ's answer to those questions about the structure of Daniel's 70th week. Well, the first thing I want to do is read the prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. Remember, this came in response to Daniel's prayer, and he was in a situation where he'd been reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he knew that Israel's exile was supposed to last 70 years, and he knew that that was coming close to an end, so he was motivated to pray for the restoration of the nation of Israel. And after he prayed, he received a vision that told, the angel told him, look, it's not going to be just 70 years. Even though there were going to be things that happened after 70 years, they were going to be allowed to return to the land and rebuild the, the temple and the city walls. But it's going to be 77 of years before Israel's truly liberated and restored the way that the Old Testament scriptures predicted that she would be. So let's read, starting in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks or seventy sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So we don't have time this morning to go through all of what's described there, but he's basically laying out the long-range plan for the redemption of Israel and the restoration of the, the city and the nation. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and that took place back in like 445 B.C., until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words... A total of 69 weeks, 69 times 7 number of years from this decree to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. And, and people have worked this out uh, doing the math. Uh, Sir Robert Anderson is a guy that's done it and wrote a little book about it. But you calculate it out, the number of days, and it comes down exactly to the day that Christ came in on the triumphal entry. If any of you are interested in, in the that further I can refer that book to you so that's what the first 69 sevens come out to is the, 
the time during Daniel's day, or, or roughly during that time, until Messiah the Prince is 69 sevens of years, and, and, and that leads all the way down to the triumphal entry of Christ. He says, it, the city, will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, and again, you have to be kind of careful how you read this. You might expect after the 69 weeks, but there's seven weeks first and then 62. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. What's that a reference to? He'll be crucified. Exactly. Exactly. He's killed. <clears throat> now, when you say it, it, the, exactly the time of the Messiah, is that exactly to the day that he was crucified? No. Or the day that he came, that he was born? It was the day that he came into the city as triumphal entry. So the oh, Sunday so the, Passion the, Week. The last Passion Week. Okay. That's right. And we, we say, well, that's how it works out, but it makes sense. Until Messiah the Prince, they were recognizing him at that day as the King of Israel. And then after that day, um, and after the fulfillment of those 69 weeks, Christ is killed. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. What's that reference to? It's the 70 AD structure. Very good. So he's not, you know, he's talking about this, these events that happen after the 69 weeks are fulfilled. One is really close in time, and that's the crucifixion of Christ. The second is some 40 years down the road, but he's not really distinguishing that. He's just saying both of those things will happen after the first 69 weeks. Its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he, who's the he? It's not, you gotta really pay attention here, and this happens in scripture. You gotta go back to what the most immediate reference would be. He is the Antichrist. Okay, he is, <clears throat> but how, how do we know that from just reading Daniel 9. What, if you go back a couple of verses, what is the pronoun he referring to? It's the prince who is to come. So the people of the prince who is to come are the ones that destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. But he is this false Christ. And again, there's a long gap of time before he comes on the scene, but he does. And he'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Again, keep in mind, the word is not really week. It's for one seven, and it's in years. So we've already had 69 sevens of years. Now we've got one 70th week, or seven of years. The tribulation period. That's right. In the, he'll make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So evidently this covenant is with the nation of Israel. It allows them to restore their system of worship. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean that they have a full-blown temple at that time. We know that they will have a temple uh, eventually, but they're at least allowed to build an altar on this place where they've always had this altar for offering sacrifice and, and be able to worship like they have in the past with sacrifices. Now, it looks good initially, but in the middle of the week, uh, he'll put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, again, that's a false Christ, even until a complete destruction, one whose decree is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's talking about the destruction of the false Christ at the very end of this week. So let me just try to draw this out for you. Obviously, the rapture of the church is not mentioned in Daniel 9 because the church doesn't exist. Nobody knows what the church is in Daniel 9. Uh, but that's what kicks off this 70th week, which we would also know as the day of the Lord. It's divided into two halves, marked off halfway by the abomination of desolation that, uh, where the false Christ takes its place in the temple. The first three and a half years, if we switch now to Matthew 24, is the beginning of birth pangs. In the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. And we're gonna we make that conclusion because the abomination of desolation is mentioned in the Olivet Discourse. So 
again, you see a lot of compare, a lot of uh, similarity between what Christ talks about Matthew 24 and 25 to what John, the Apostle John, talks about in the book of Revelation. John obviously would have been there at the Olivet Discourse. He was one of the 12. The first six seals of the seven seal scroll take place roughly over the period of the first three and a half years. Now, we're not going to go to Revelation 6, but think about what happens particularly in the first four seals of the seven sealed scroll. There's a false peace established by the false Christ or by many false Christ. There is, that's followed by warfare and bloodshed. That's followed by famine and that's followed by death pestilence. by pestilence, exactly. So those things are mentioned. We'll see that they're mentioned in the Olivet Discourse by Christ. I used to think and was convinced that when he makes that prediction, Matthew 24, he's only talking about it in the sense of the first three and a half years of the tribulation. I'm now more convinced that, and those things, think about how general those things are, right? You've had warfare throughout history. You've certainly had quite a bit of it from the time that Christ spoke these words until now. You've had false Christ, both very close in time after Christ makes this prediction, and even in our own day, you've had people claim to be the Messiah. You've had uh, famine in different parts of the world, and you've had earthquakes. So that's another thing that I didn't mention. But So I think the point here is, yeah, you have, all these things are going to happen but that's only the beginning of birth pangs. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're at the very end. You hear people say in a lot of certain things that happened during our day and even the earlier days, Christ it must be Christ must be coming back soon because of these things that have happened. And yet he hasn't come yet. Um, but the abomination of desolation really ends the beginning of birth pangs and starts very intense tribulation. And so if you're looking at the book of Revelation, that's when the seventh seal is broken, which reveals the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. And that is the great tribulation that's unlike any other tribulation that's ever been before or ever will be after. Um, and then, you know, the, the church has already gone up to be with the Lord in glorified bodies. There's been a number of people saved over this seven year period but all those saints come back. There's resurrection at the end of the seven years for those uh, in Christ, but not yet, that, that weren't part of the church. And Christ himself comes this time, not just in the air and catching up believers to himself in the air, but he comes all the way back to the earth and, and takes his throne, uh, the throne of David in Jerusalem. <clears throat> so I, I just think it's helpful to have this background from Daniel 9 and, and now we'll start reading the Olivet Discourse itself. So, start. let's look at verse 4, and this is the beginning of verse, verse pangs recorded for us in Matthew 24, 4 through 14. Now, Mark and Luke also record different parts of the Olivet Discourse, and it's helpful again to read this in the harmony. Luke really talks explicitly more about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but... There's a lot of similarity in the language between all three accounts. <clears throat> Jesus answered and said to them, and again, this is in response to their question, especially uh, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. He said to the, he, Jesus said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Again, we see warnings about that uh, in First John. We know from history that there have been multitude, well, a number of people that have claimed to be the Christ. And he's telling them ahead of time, look, don't be ready for this. Know this and don't be suckered. Don't, don't let somebody tell you that they're the Christ when they're not. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened for those things must take place but that's not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Again, we see that all through history, even before Christ said this, but we certainly see it from the time that he set it up to now. We see it a lot in our own day. 
But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. Now again, certainly the apostles are going to experience that kind of persecution, but I would argue that there are other followers of Christ in this inner this in-between time that are, have suffered the same fate. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. I think he, there he's talking about people that have claimed an association with Christ, uh, but fall away from the faith and even are willing to deliver up those who still follow Christ. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. And again, I would argue that that is the trend of history, is that wickedness has increased. I don't know how you can read this and be post-millennial and say somehow that the, the world is being Christianized today, the gospel is just overcoming all wickedness, and it's going to continue that way until Christ comes back. We're just not making that kind of progress. It's obvious from what we see. It's obvious from the New Testament that that's not what's going to happen. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Endures in the sense of holding fast to the faith. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Now, again, we're doing that today as the church, right? We're taking the gospel all over the world, different parts of the world. There's obviously different percentages of genuine believers in different countries. But I think this is making reference more to what's described in Revelation, where you've got this eagle flying in mid-heaven and having an eternal gospel preached. There's going to be a point during the tribulation, and it's getting close to the very end, where the gospel is being proclaimed in a supernatural way to all the inhabitants of the earth. There's still going to be a lot of people that reject it at that point, but I think that's what he's referring to in verse 14. Kathleen. Okay. So in verse 13, mm -hmm. endures to the end. That really means someone who is truly saved will not doubt that they're saved. So they can be assured themselves that they are, we would say, go to heaven now. Yeah, I don't think it's speaking to that. I mean, I I think you could be a genuine Christian and have doubts at different times. Sure, but you, you can have doubts about all kinds of things, but if you really saw you were a sinner and you really saw who God was and that he had died for you and everything else, that's a real thing in your life. You know this happened. And if you are able to hang on to the faith in that, that that had happened, then you're one of the ones that is truly saved. That's right. And that's, I, th I think that's might be saying that. I do. I think so, too, especially as you contrast it with those who fall away. Because there could be all this false teaching out there mm -hmm. that could be saying other stuff about being saved. Oh, sure. I mean, you've even got a false Christ, and and he's dominating the scene such that people are embracing him as the true Christ. So, obviously, the ones that do that won't be persecuted, right? Because that's the world system at the time. But... For those that know the true Christ, well, one, you've got to remember that the church has already been taken up when all this takes place. But you will have people that are saved during the tribulation that will be put to death because they hold to the truth. But they'll know that was the truth because they came to that point where they were they were able to be saved. Yes. So yep. they know this is real. That's right. They've wrestled through it. And they right. can count on the fact that they will they will endure. Yes, I, again, that doesn't I, mean they won't die physically. But that's right. They're not going to be caught up in all this deception and stuff. Yeah, I think the main point he's making in thirteen is that it is the one who stays faithful and perseveres that will be saved, as opposed to those who fall away and reject Christ. Because I think they'll see that everything as evil. They will see you're a believer at that point. If they'll recognize all they'll the They'll realize this is all evil and That's I'm right. not going with it. That's they right. might not they might be sneaking or whatever they might be doing, but their heart is not believing that testimony. That's right. <clears throat> 
Okay, so that really is describing the period up to the abomination of desolation that we looked at. Um, I want to just quickly read you some uh, references that talk about birth pangs and how that's a very common figure for for this time of tribulation. These are from the Old Testament, but, but also in 1 Thessalonians 5. I'll just read through these quickly just so you can hear the phrase. It's very important to interpret both of it, discourse and the book of Revelation against the background of the Old Testament. Isaiah 13, 6, Well, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. And they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Isaiah 26, 17, As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth she rises and cries out in her labor pains thus were we before thee O lord and some of these even have reference to the coming of the babylonians to take judah but the idea is the same it's a time where uh, well where this figure is used as israel is becoming uh, troubled and and persecuted <coughs> Jeremiah 30, verse 6, Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? Again, it's just a very graphic figure of the fear and the, mainly the fear that are coming, is coming over these people. Why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There's none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Micah 4, 9. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. Rise in labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now, you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. So that is talking about the Babylonian exile. There you'll be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And then finally, Paul writes this talking about the day of the Lord and how it would be a surprise to some and not to others in 1 Thessalonians 5. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. So that's the background of the figure that Christ uses in all of it discourse. All right, so now we get to the second half of Daniel's 70th week, the abomination of desolation marking it off uh, it does end the birth pangs and begins the great tribulation and it again just like birth pangs for a woman get more and more intense as they go along until the delivery so the the punishments the wrath of god being poured out the difficulty of living in that day increases until christ comes back <clears throat> matthew 24 verse 15 Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, he's talking about that very passage that we read in Daniel 9, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, your Bible may have that last part set off in parentheses, as if Matthew is writing that as a commentary. I think it's words spoken by Christ, and he's talking about let the reader of Daniel understand that this is what we're talking about here in in this discourse then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things out of that out that are in his house let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak what's the main emphasis there hurry hurry get out of Dodge get to the mountains get somewhere where you can get away from this now at this point I think you make the argument that he's talking about destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And you have to understand that there's a relationship between those two things. Destruction in 70 AD is what we would call a prototype or a harbinger of what it's going to be like in the Great Tribulation in the very end. In both cases, uh, the thrust of what he's talking about here is just how difficult it is and when will be during those times. <coughs> what are those who are with child? And to those who nurse babes in those days, why? Slow going. It's slow going. It's just harder to get away, harder to run. Pray that your flight might not be in the winter 
or on a Sabbath. Again, because it's just going to be more difficult. They were actually limited as to how far they could travel on a Sabbath day. And if they tried to abide by that, they might be hindered in getting away from all this. I've read that in modern day Israel, the buses don't work. They don't run on the Sabbath. And also the wadis can fill up. The wadis can get filled up in the wintertime. And the roads go right down into the wadis and back up again. They don't put the bridges over them. That's what I read. So you could you could have a, a full wadi in your way. Yes, it can make it more difficult to travel. Yeah. Um, I want to read the part of Luke Yes. Go ahead. I read that Basra was in the mountains and that they knew to run to Basra. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I was a big long thing that I read. That's why they were to run to the mountains. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I in general, it's just getting higher ground. Testament prophecies about I'm afraid I read it about a week and a half ago before anything happened. Yeah, I don't. That doesn't ring a bell. No, not to me. It doesn't mean it's not true. So if if you do look at Luke's account, Luke 21 verse 20 says, and again, this is not recorded exactly the same way in Matthew, but to me, it's more explicit that he is talking about destruction of Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of the city depart and let not those who are in the country enter the city. So the idea is to get away from the city because that's where the enemy has come and that's what they're going to destroy. Because these are days of vengeance in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. What are those who are the child and those who nurse babes in those days? For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. <clears throat> now, all that happened in 70 AD. I mean, you've since then, you've had pretty significant return back to the land of Israel by Israelites. But you've got more people out, living outside of Israel today than you do inside, including here in the United States. Huge Jewish population here. So... The fact that the Dome of the Rock and the Alaska Mosque are on Temple Mount also proves that this is the time that the Gentiles are trampling underfoot the city of Jerusalem. Uh, we're still in those days right now. Can I ask another question? Sure. This wrath is the wrath of God it against is. Israel. Yeah. So you it, flee if you're now beginning to obey the scriptures. Uh, I think people are going to flee naturally anyway. Yeah. Um, I think he's just warning them really more than anything how difficult this is going to be. The Jewish leadership back then isn't doing what they've done all along to say, no, the safest place is to be right here. I don't think they were saying that in 70 AD for sure. Apparently they were. That's why they stayed for the siege when they knew the Romans were approaching. Well, the way a siege works. Jeremiah, wasn't Jeremiah saying, we got to get out of here. We got to just go peace with the Babylonians and, and, and surrender. But you're, talking, you're going back to the Old Testament now. Yeah. I'm talking about 70 AD when the Roman armies come. I mean, they do surround the city and there's no way out to some degree. But once those things started happening, the smart thing to do was to flee. Where could they flee? To the mountains. Out, out of Judea, out of Jerusalem. I thought, I'm just saying this, I thought they're fleeing before the armies get there and what we're doing now. Well, it That's says, why they can get out. It says when you, AD, they couldn't get out. They couldn't get out, but they they didn't know it was going to be 70 AD when Christ was telling them this. And what he says is when you see Jerusalem surrounded, then know their desolation's hand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I don't think they're going to flee to the mountains uh, knowing that one day the Romans were going to come. They were going to wait till it looked more serious, and then they would try to get out. But they, this is 70 AD, you don't think this is the middle of the tribulation? I think it's both. I think that the discourse is, as recorded by both Matthew and Luke and Mark, for that matter, are really talking about both events without separating them very clearly. Um, I think they're 
I think the, the temple was desecrated by Gentiles at 70 AD just because they came up there and destroyed it. But it was also there's also a future temple that would be that was the punishment to that generation. But Israel itself gets really punished in the tribulation. Well, I would say they got really punished then too. Yeah, but I mean it, it's even worse in the tribulation to be sure. The, the, gen, the, the generation that rejected Christ, they got they brought 70 AD Yes. But the ongoing sin of Israel brings on the great tribulation. That's a good good way to put it. At any point they could have turned and said, Blessed be the name of the Lord and but of course in mean, God's timing and everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk about the, the generation thing here in just a minute. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Uh, cut short in the sense of limited. It's not like God planned for it to be this long and then he changed his mind and made it this long. I think it just means uh, all of this is emphasizing how incredibly difficult the days are going to be. And God puts a limit on it so that some will survive. Well, going back to the previous verse, if the believers are told to flee to the mountains, I thought their role during the tribulation period was to evangelize, not to survive. Is that just pure survival? Like it feels like that's what he's saying. Well, 144,000 in the book of Revelation are the ones that will really survive. You've got and again, I'm, I'm going to Revelation at this point because you have more information than you do here in the Olivet Discourse about that question. You've got Israel being transported to the wilderness at a certain point during the tribulation period, and that's when they come to recognize their Messiah, and they are kind of sequestered there. They're not being persecuted the way that they would be if they were under the reign of the false Christ. So... <clears throat> It depends on where you are during the tribulation period. And also the 144,000 are more the missionary evangelist uh, during the tribulation period than the nation as a whole. So these are unbelieving Jews as well fleeing. Uh, 70 AD? In the tribulation. Any Jew is mostly just because they're not saved, you know, as, as in general, they're not uh, saved yet. Yeah, I... Again, I think anybody's going to flee that's facing that kind of prospect, yeah, just like you would in any war. You're going to try to get out of the way of what's happening. <coughs> okay, um, verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. So again, there's a reference back to these false Christs and false prophets because people might try to take advantage of that situation and claim to be the Christ. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Now, this is talking about plural false Christs here. We know that the, the false Christ of this time period will be have supernatural power. And Paul talks about that in 2 Thessalonians. We see it in the book of Revelation as well. And he's... He's doing these works of power to point to himself uh, as, as the Christ. This Christ says, Behold, I've told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, when Christ comes back, you'll know it. You won't have to rely on somebody else's testimony. The whole world will know it when he comes back to the earth. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now that's a pretty obscure saying. Um, the best understanding I have right now of that is that when, as the book of Revelation describes in Revelation 19, when Christ comes back, there's gonna be great armies that are slaughtered and the, the birds will have plenty to eat. Remember, there was this invitation for the great supper of God to the birds. And so I think this is a reference to that. <clears throat> yes. Um, 
Okay, so I have a hard time when I'm reading this section understanding he's talking about 70 AD and he's talking about the tribulation at the same time. How do we know which verses are referring to both and which are just referring to the Great Tribulation? So some of that is easier than the other, right? One of the ways that, that you know is certain ones you know happened at 70 AD. In the, the passage I read from Luke where the armies come in, right. people fled, the city was destroyed. That was clearly fulfilled in 70 AD. Certain other of the verses clearly didn't happen then, particularly the ones we're about to read with the natural, the things in creation unraveling. What about like the false Christ? Did that happen back then? So that one is a harder one. And I would say that you did have instances of that happening back then and have had since then. So to me, that's something that you kind of have throughout the period of um, when Christ delivers this discourse discourse until the ultimate false Christ comes at the end. <clears throat> but it's a good question and it's a hard thing to discern. I think you could take the language that we read uh, in verses 16 through 22 even to be talking about destruction of Jerusalem. But obviously it's going to be that way in the future too with the, with the future tribulation, great tribulation. Okay, now we're at the coming of the Son of Man in verse 29 of Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall. That's all, has Old Testament background. It's all described in the book of Revelation. Um, those are things that didn't take place in 70 AD. Now there's a certain group of people that would say they did but they have to take it figuratively uh, as you know, just a really difficult time. Uh, talk about the sun turned red or the moon turned to blood because the dust of all the chariots kicked up in 70 AD and you looked up in the sky and that's the way it was. But <clears throat> I, don't, I take it more literally and uh, I take it that way because of the Old Testament background that anticipates those things. And what better way uh, to know that this is indeed God's wrath than when the whole creation begins to unravel. Okay, so I read that this only referred to tribulation. The whole section of Matthew? Or? This section here, um, um, Matthew 15, 24, 15, on, because Jesus was done warning that generation. They were no longer getting any more warning. Okay, but are you saying that 4 through 14 is still talking about destruction in 70 AD? Um, I'm not sure what I read about that. I, I just think it's... But that, that there's a definite cutoff point where he's talking about yet, you know, the end, the end end. Well, again... The, for me, the way to distinguish the end-end is to know, one, the things that happened immediately before it comes, and two, the supernatural things that didn't happen in 70 AD. I just think some of those other verses would be just as applicable, especially as you read the parallel account in Luke's Gospel to 70 AD. And, and you know, it says Daniel, so this is Daniel's 70th week, and that is then, not 70 AD. That's true. So that was the two things I read. Okay, it says the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Again, I think that's very literally. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son, <coughs> Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. I don't think there's any question that that's only future. I don't think you can make any kind of case that Christ came to earth in power and glory in 70 AD. Now, people who take that view say, well, Coming on the clouds is a common symbol in the Old Testament for judgment. And, and Christ did come in a sense in 70 AD in judgment on Jerusalem. I just don't think that fits with what follows in the context. Verse 31, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Again, I think that's saved people during the tribulation period. And we're going to stop 
Oh, no. Let's keep going. <coughs> I learned the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now, you might say, well, he's telling that generation about these things. It must all be talking about 70 A.D., but I think this is going to, the scripture, the word of God will be available during the tribulation period. And there'll be people at that time that will recognize that the, those things are being fulfilled before he comes back. As far as the, the sign of the son of man, that word is also a word that's used in connection with a military standard or a banner. Uh, and so it, it could be something like that when Christ returns. I think it's very difficult to know what the sign of the Son of Man's coming is. I think what's clear is that when he comes, uh, it'll be clear to the whole world that he is coming. That makes sense. Doesn't he come with armies? He does, according to Revelation 19. That would fit the sign being the military. It would. Verse 34. <coughs> I know we're getting a little past time here, so I'm going to stop with 34 and pick up for the rest of this um, next week. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. So this generation, I'm curious how you understand that based either on your own study or what you've been taught in the light of this discourse. What is this generation? The human race, the generation of mankind. Okay, generation of mankind. Any other options? The Jewish people of that time. The Jewish people at that time, the contemporaries of Jesus' day that he's delivering this discourse to and describing. And basically, at that, if you take that, you're going to take it as 70 AD, destruction of 70 AD. And then you need to read verse 37. Okay. Which equates it to the days of Noah. Okay. Which is the total earthly destruction. All right, so if you take verse 37 and the destruction of the whole earth, then 70 AD is not going to work. What? Well, he just talked about, like, you'll see these signs with the fig tree, and so maybe it's the people that see those signs, like the fig tree, you okay. know what I mean, that, you know, summer's coming. Yes. So another view is that whenever these things start, that generation will see it to the very end. Mm -hmm. That's a very popular view. Um that they'll happen in quick enough succession that the generation that begins to see these things happen will see all the way to the end. Well, it's a seven-year period, so yeah, a generation. It makes would, sense, would right? See it. Yeah, that's right. right. And Norma. Um, is there any parallel there of the fig tree and the beginning of the leaves uh, that then you can tell that that time is beginning to be near, and the. Um, uh, nation of Israel becoming back in 1948 okay um, being that generation of the last times so that's that's a very good question and there was a guy named Hal Lindsey that actually wrote a book about that uh, and basically said that when Israel came back in 1948 within 40 years of that period of time a generation that Christ himself would return now, that would make him his return in 1988, and we know that that didn't happen. But 80 years being a generation okay. would make you know, yeah. the time frame very, very near at this point. So I would contend that that's the very thing that God doesn't want us to do, is try to figure out what the date of his return is. The other thing... So we know, know the times and the seasons, okay, so not the days. That's right. Sure. But that's... That's kind of what people try to do, though, right? They, they use 1948 as a starting point, and they try to figure out what a generation would be and at least get a, a close idea, if not exact date. And you can make that argument. I, for one, I, I think the fig tree in this case is not Israel. You know, I know it's a common figure for Israel. What is it? I just think it's an illustration that once you see, what does it say? When the branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So in the same way that when you see these things happening, you know that Christ's return is near. It's really just using a very basic illustration of these being uh, precursors to the return of Christ. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily referring to a season. 
I think it is referring to a season in the sense that harvest is near and harvest in the sense of judgment, destruction. I just don't think it's referring to Israel, which I know is a little different question than what you ask. But that's what some people take this fig tree as Israel. In this case, I don't think it's referring to Israel. I just think it's an illustration. I don't think there's enough in the context to tie it to Israel. Think, but we hate to think it. Israel could be lost again. They could be driven out of the land again, for sure. Yeah, we don't know for sure this is true. We don't. Okay, so I still have another option for this generation that I really like, <laughs> and nobody said it so far. The uh, church? No. Uh, and and I, these others are not bad options. But I want, I want you to listen to some previous references in Matthew's gospel by Christ of the exact same phrase. And after you hear them, you might say, well, that's still talking about the contemporary uh, generation of Jesus. And it is, but there's something else that ties these together. And I want you to tell me what it is. Matthew eleven sixteen. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children. And I'm, I'm going to stop right there with that one, but I, I trust you remember the context there. Matthew 12:41 and 42. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall also shall rise up with this generation of the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Then just last week, I believe it was, we read this. It might have been two weeks ago. Matthew 23, 34 to 36. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. That's Jesus' day. It's this type of people. Exactly. I think... This generation is the kind of people that have rejected God and his message, certainly from Jesus' day to now, but even before now. You know, you think about back to Noah, where God saw Noah and he found favor in his sight of the generation of that day. And you have this kind of language used in other places, evil, wicked, perverse generation. I think he's saying here, this generation is the people that oppose God. Certainly it would include the contemporaries of Jesus that opposed him, but it would also include all the people since that day uh, that reject God, reject his message. We know that's going to be especially true during the tribulation period. So I believe this generation is talking about that kind of people. And the fact that they're going to continue uh, even after Christ ascends back to heaven. That makes it even more open-ended to not understanding as far as how exactly well oh as far as uh, if there's being, this type there's always going to be this type yes of people. yes so i guess what it would do is correct a false expectation that you know eventually people would embrace the gospel and its message and we wouldn't have to worry about opposition and that sort of does away with one mode of thinking that it, it does that it's getting better and better. That's and better. right, exactly. And so, you know, I think those people would say, yeah, that was done away with in 70 AD, and I just don't know how you can make the case that it isn't continuing today. Mm -hmm. It's a very hard case to make. So yeah. 70 AD did not judge that generation? It did. Specifically, or did it just judge the people like that? Because we know believers went off into that judgment they didn't get rescued out of it but the point he's making here is that the wickedness of that generation that crucified christ is going to continue and that kind of people yeah. is going to continue and you know he even charges them in matthew 23 he charges those people that he's talking to with the death of a man that lived hundreds of years earlier 
So that's, I think, a strong argument for the fact that it is a kind of people uh, that rejects Christ and rejects God and his message. That continues even into the millennial kingdom. I mean, I think so long as people are born in this world, which is a fallen world, uh, there are going to be those kinds of people because he comes back at, at a thousand years later and he, he destroys the rest of them once after Satan is loosed. That's right. Comes back and once and for all takes out all of the others and the only ones who go to heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, those will be people who are not of that generation. That's right. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. But that kind of people exist even in, through the millennial kingdom. Now your, your harmony says you could use the word race and to Jews, there are two races, the Jews and the Gentiles. And he could be saying, the Jews, um, the Jews will not pass away until all these things. Yeah, that is another option. I think Andre mentioned that one, that the nation of Israel. I told, sorry. <laughs> that, is, that is another option. I just, I don't think it's the best one. Uh, certainly both are true. Israel will continue and has continued as a nation until the present day and, and beyond. But I think in the context here, the one that... When you hook it up to the next verse, though, it makes sense. You know, it's like two assurances. This is coming, but don't worry. Until heaven and earth pass away, you will be here and my words will be here. And so will the evil generation that opposes me. So yeah. I think you can make that argument yeah, not just the Jewish people but all people I mean they're you know people that are today that are out you know who knows in whatever countries and who don't believe in God are considered enemies of God because yes. they haven't accepted Christ that's right most of the world is that way exactly yeah most of the world and it's only going to get worse yeah okay um I've got a really good journal article if you want to read that or you want to study some of that more it talks about those different options and it makes the case largely based on the earlier references in Matthew that it is a kind of people that opposes Christ. All I right. can read all this stuff and see all the arguments and pick and choose what makes sense to me. I'll put my Bible down and walk down and go to the next passage because that's the best I can do. <laughs> well, that's what we're called to do is to try to search it out and come up with what's right. Meanwhile, it's interesting. Okay, well, that's not, I didn't get quite as far as I wanted to, but that's okay. We'll finish this up next week, and we'll also get into the parables um, that Christ teaches in light of this truth. Let's pray together, and we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Father, we are thankful that you've told us in advance of things, and some things you've told us in advance of their happening, and, and we see even in biblical history that they have already happened. But some things you've made clear have not yet been fulfilled, and particularly the things immediately preceding the return of Christ. We thank you for that revelation, and we thank you that uh, <coughs> because of the rapture, and because of the fact that we'll be taken out of the world during the time of tribulation, uh, we're protected from your wrath. Um, we understand that this is your wrath against not only an unbelieving Israel, but against an unbelieving world. And we know at the same time that your grace and your mercy extend <coughs> through this period of time. Thankful for that as well. Lord, uh, there are some difficult things in here and godly men have studied and come up with different conclusions. We want to understand it uh, the way that you intended it. We just pray for your spirit to help us in that and that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ through that. Thank you so much for the time we've had together this morning and help us to to live expectantly help us to be psalm one kind of people and not uh this generation kind of people we pray these things in christ's name amen, amen.